what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. Let's talk about morning routines, or as the youths are calling them, five to nines. Working five to nine, you've got passion and a vision, cause it's hustling time, a whole new way to make a living. Now it's rare to find a work of self-help that doesn't mention morning routines in one capacity or another. It's one topic that both hustle and grind strategies and work as art philosophies have in common. Don't get me wrong, I love my morning routine. And yeah, my morning routine is a five to nine. There are two main ways morning routines are presented in self-help texts. The first way is that morning routines make you more productive the rest of the day. You work out, read books, meditate, and sip tea specifically so you can crank even harder while you're at work. The second way is that morning routines are invaluable me time before others can start making demands on you. Morning routines become a way to gird your spirit to face a thankless and often unforgiving world. Now it's fitting that the youths on TikTok have started to refer to morning routines as five to nines. In many ways, these long elaborate rituals are an extension of work. Whether you consider them a productivity hack or a hedge against the risks of unsustainable systems, the need for a five to nine is a product of the nine to five. And who really benefits from workers devoting their mornings to a carefully calibrated practice that begins before dawn? Employers, of course. And in that group, I include self-employers. They or we, profit off our willingness to do what it takes to stay marginally healthy despite unhealthy working conditions. Workers end up being the ones who compensate for the lack of appropriate compensation. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores navigating the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. This is the final installment in the Self-Help LLC series. So far, we've tackled many of the core messages in the medium of self-help. We've looked at winning, empowerment, trust, identity, confidence, and bodies. This week, we're exploring the hustle. This episode is coming at you in two parts. First, a look at what's really going on with those morning routines in light of the productivity wage gap. And second, my conversation with Jada Selner about her new book, She Builds, a decidedly gentler addition to the business bookshelves. Google morning routines. Getting up before everybody else, that peace and quiet, that emptiness, that's grind time. And the results are both predictable. Every morning I wake up three hours before I go to bed. That way I maximize my productivity out of the next day. And laughable. I want it. I'm going to succeed. Are you? Best morning routine. 21 steps to a more productive day. Five best morning routine ideas of productive people. The ultimate morning routine to make you happy. Top 10 morning routines of highly successful people. It's also not surprising that the sources of these headlines are Asana and Trello's blogs, Lifehack, and WeWork's blog. Morning routines aren't new, of course, but our obsession with them and their near necessary presence in our lives is more recent. So why are we so concerned with spending unpaid hours working on ourselves before we ever get to work? Let's take a quick detour into the origin of the nine to five workday and the family division of labor. Labor theorist Silvia Federici argues that the wage gives the impression of a fair deal. After all, you agree to devote yourself to work for a certain period of time every day, and you get paid for that time or for the marginal value of your labor. But Federici says, quote, 
In reality, the wage, rather than paying for the work you do, hides all the unpaid work that goes into profit. Now, what is the hidden unpaid work that goes into profit? How can a business even profit from unpaid work? Let's imagine the Fordist fantasy of the post-war era. There's a white, quote-unquote, traditional family who lives in a ranch-style house in a suburban subdivision. The father goes off to work from nine to five. Maybe, as I do, you picture this dad as John Hamm. The mother, perhaps appearing as a Stepford wife, is at home during the day. She gets the kids off to school and then sets about the work of the home, cleaning, doing laundry, running errands, prepping meals. When the kids get home from school, she has snacks already laid out. When father gets home, mother brings him a cocktail and turns on the TV for him. She heads back to the kitchen to finish dinner and set the table. Father gets to eat dinner, smoke a cigar, and drink a glass of port before heading to bed. Mother does the dishes, ensures the kids have finished their homework, and gets things ready to do it all over again. This is, as I said, a fantasy. But this fantasy is embedded in our expectations for ourselves. Now note that the main thing the father has to focus on in this scenario is paid work. When he gets home, his wife works unpaid to replenish him for the next day. He is more productive at work because she makes it so. And that's how businesses profit off of unpaid labor. Our conceptions of work still revolve around the idea that going home at the end of the day means getting the chance to be replenished. But, except in very few cases, no one is waiting to take care of us at the end of a long day of work. No one has a cocktail or cup of tea in hand when we leave the office or walk through the front door. No one is doing the dishes for us or wrangling the kids so we can watch the evening news in peace. And this is true for people of all genders. Since everyone is expected to work for pay today, no one has a caregiver waiting at home for them. And as more people stay single for longer or opt to just remain single, few people even have someone to share this labor with. Now, the truth is, of course, the home was always a work site. Running a home takes labor, whether it's yours, a partner's, or a low-wage worker's. For most of us, this has meant increasing expectations at work and at home. We require elaborate coping mechanisms, like a four-hour morning routine, to make it all work. Our employers, whether another company or ourselves, profit from those coping mechanisms. Maybe that sounds kind of far-fetched, but it proves out in the data. From 1948 to 1979, productivity grew 118%, according to the Economic Policy Institute. Wages grew at about the same rate, about 110%. But in 1979, the growth of productivity and wages diverged dramatically. Since 1979, productivity in the U.S. labor force has increased by 62%. Meanwhile, wages have only risen 16%. Bummer. Workers are producing more than ever, but compensation just hasn't kept up. Now, if you're a business owner or independent worker, you might be thinking, well, that stinks, but I set my own pay and expectations for productivity. And that's true. But we still work within a socioeconomic system that relies on that productivity wage gap. The differential is embedded in how we think about work and what earning a living looks like. The productivity wage gap is a sort of origin story for what we might disparagingly referred to as hustle culture, the chasm between our ability to produce and what we're paid to produce is one of the more personally destabilizing components of the 21st century economy. And on that note, I want to recall a line from Mickey McGee's Self-Help Inc. that I shared in the first episode of this series. 
She writes, quote, a sense of personal security is anomalous, while anxiety is the norm. To manage this anxiety, individuals have been advised not only to work longer and harder, but also to invest in themselves, manage themselves, and continuously improve themselves. Hustle at work. Hustle at home. Hustle at the gym, in your bed, on your meditation cushion. All of our hustle outside the office supercharges our hustle in the office. In her new book, Rest is Resistance, Trisha Hersey put it this way, quote, the culture does not want you rested unless it is attached to your increased labor and productivity. So economically speaking, why do we have this productivity wage gap? Why do wages just not keep up? All right, imagine you have a team of four people. So that's three people in addition to yourself to handle the workload of your business. Over time, your team becomes more efficient. It makes better use of software products and it's able to produce more in less time. At that point, you essentially have three options. One, you can add more work into the mix. Two, you could lay someone off. Or three, allow your team members to work less. Now, two out of the three of those options have the effect of increasing the productivity wage gap. If you add more work for you and your team to do and don't increase their pay, productivity goes up, but wages stay the same. Now, if you lay someone off, the remaining workers are less likely to ask for a pay increase because they're just lucky to have a job. And still, their productivity goes up because now your team is three people doing the work of four. The only option that doesn't increase the productivity wage gap is to allow your workers to work less. Maybe you realize that the work of running the business really does only take four days instead of five each week. So nothing changes except that the office is closed on Fridays. Everyone works 32 hours per week rather than 40. This not only reduces the hustle at work, but reduces the hustle at home because you have more time to focus on caring for yourself. But very, very few companies and small business owners take this third option. Profit always seems to trump rest. And taking either of those first two options, well, it leaves us with today's economic reality. We are working harder than ever, but lack any sense of personal stability. Plus, no one is coming to save us but ourselves. At least, that's what we learn from the medium of self-help. Whether we're talking about business advice, productivity hacks, or confidence culture, we absorb the explicit message that it's up to us. Our relationships with others are dissolved into a reliance on self-mastery and individualism. And from there, exploitation and domination become not only easier to stomach, but logical. Now, productivity was not originally applied to human beings. One might speak of how productive a field was, as in how many bushels of grain does it produce each year? One might speak of how productive a machine was, as in how many pages does this printer produce per minute? But with the advent of scientific management, human workers became the object of productivity measurements. Jobs became highly specialized. Instead of being the person who built a chair, you became the person who glued the legs onto the chair. Later, you might have even become the person who glued a leg onto the chair if it meant that chair was produced more quickly and more chairs could be produced in a day. Everything became about the numbers. Time was no longer an abstract concept of lived experience. It was a standardized unit for measuring output. Compensation was no longer tied to the real value of what you produced in a day. It was tied to the time you spent producing. As the systems around worker productivity evolved, the relational components of work broke down. 
Anthropologist David Graeber provocatively suggests that ours is a system of converting love into debt. His book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years, details how local markets have historically defaulted to foundations of honor, trust, and mutual connectedness when not besieged by violence. But whenever violence and coercion maintain our systems of trade, as they do now, then the products of human cooperation, creativity, devotion, love, and trust turn back into numbers. And when everything is about the numbers, it's pretty easy to work the numbers. Graeber writes, quote, For me, this is exactly what's so pernicious about the morality of debt, the way that financial imperatives constantly try to reduce us all despite ourselves, to the equivalent of pillagers, eyeing the world simply for what can be turned into money and then tell us that it's only those who are willing to see the world as pillagers who deserve access to the resources required to pursue anything in life other than money. Jada Selner is an artist and business coach who does not see the world in this way. Her new book offers a more generative and human approach to business building. It's called She Builds. Now, at first, I will admit I was a bit uncomfortable with the title. I'm a bit allergic to business books marketed specifically to women. But as soon as I opened up the book, there was a thoughtful explanation of the title. She gestures toward a more nurturing, interdependent, abundant, and intimate approach to business. And builds is an excellent reminder that the goal of a business is to create value rather than merely extract it from financial markets or followers on Instagram. I decided to run my conversation with Jada mostly unedited because as we discovered then and you'll discover now, Jada and I have been on a very similar path these last few years. I think you'll find our back and forth really valuable. So the first thing I wanted to really ask you about was why write this book? And I don't mean that just in terms of like, what was the mission behind it? But actually, sort of, how are you engaging with this greater discourse around women and business and doing things differently? How does the book build on or refute books with similar aims? Like, how do you see it playing into the larger conversation that's out there? Yeah, so it really comes back to when I first became an entrepreneur. I've been an entrepreneur for over 14 years now. And when I was reading business books, it was, you know, $100 startup, four-hour work week, e-myth, you know, just all these books that were written by white guys who weren't parents. Mm-hmm. And um, so they weren't speaking to the things that I was juggling and holding on to. And as a, a, a woman of color, I'm black, Chinese, and white. I'm also a mom, non-college educated. So I'm learning from these people that have, you know, deep college education. So there was a part of me that felt like it wasn't possible as I was building. So I was Mm -hmm. trying to look for proof of possibility. The closest thing I could get to was a Jewish man um, (laughs) who was a dad, but also a great friend and mentor of mine, Jonathan Fields, the host of Good Life Project. But I was really searching and seeking of who is navigating that world of parenting, entrepreneurship, caregiving. And so that was just always something that was planted on my heart that I, I wanted a, a book that represented my reality, my world. So that was kind of weaving into my own personal mission, but also from the, the landscape is these are the books that were still being written and served mm-hmm. up to people who are more marginalized identities and communities and racial backgrounds. And so really we're not speaking to the whole person. And so my coaching style is very holistic, that the way that our lives, how they're being impacted personally, also impact the way that we show up professionally. And that's whether you're running your own business or you're an entrepreneur inside a company. And so 
we're kind of missing a piece of the puzzle that can impact the way that we show up in our work. Yeah. From my own experience with trying to put out what I hope is a fairly subversive <laughs> book onto the entrepreneurship shelves, I ran into and I'm continuing to run into a lot of misconceptions about what the book is about. Like desperately trying to get Wiley to take the word achieve mm. out of the description of the book, <laughs> right? It's like, there's nothing wrong with achievement, but I'm really like, there's a whole chapter about like, let's try practice instead of achievement, yes. right? And so I'm curious if there were any like language or conceptual things that you ran into with the publishing industry, with your agent, with your editor, with marketing the book, where you've really had to over explain yourself to be heard in the way you want to be heard. Yeah. So two parts to this one, I'm actually very surprised with Harper Business that one that they were totally down with anti-hustle. They were totally down with using she. Like I, I question that. You know, having people in in my world who are queer, identifying, non-binary, feeling, and I like a high value. Of mine is inclusivity. You know, too. <laughs> and so it's like, oh, I'm excluding people, but we need safe people to be around. So I was actually really surprised that they were advocating because I was I was actually questioning it. It was almost like the external patriarchy was like making me question like is this inclusive enough or expansive enough. So I was very shocked about that. And then also my cover has a gold foil heart on it. And we were looking at a lot of different other options and they were pushing for that. I'm like, is that too fluffy? Like so it's interesting because I'm all love, right? Like people will know that, but I also I'm also very practical. I'm very strategic. I'm like my the way my brain works behind the scenes. People are always surprised because they just see like warm hugs and my podcast lead with love and all of these things. So I, I wanted it to be grounded. So I just want to like give a like a plus one to Harper Business for advocating for she, for advocating for anti-hustle, for advocating for a heart on a business book. So I will just say that. And where I actually saw it was more even in my editing process of the editors that I was collaborating with. And I, I collaborated with a lot of different writers. And one of them had said something in the refill your well. So I talk about um, self-care and not looking at it as a just you know, bubble baths and massages. But in that I had put, I want to be a self-care style was solo lounger. So I was saying, I'm a solo lounger. She's like, oh, that feels like lazy. And, and I was, so it was just an interesting wording. And I remember in the comment box that I was like, look, it's okay to not be doing something all the time that we don't need this to be proactive and like on like, and lounger doesn't, and actually there's nothing wrong with being lazy because I am actually a huge advocate of, I'm kind of like on the lazy river of how I build businesses. Of I'm going with the flow, I'm allowing it to move me, I'm surrendering, I'm trusting the process, all of those pieces. And so it's just interesting that we can kind of move against some of that like productivity languaging of like, this is the right way to do it. And this is the wrong way. Uh, I think about it as values hijacking. Like there's a there's a way in which we give lip service to what we care about while not interrogating the systems that have convinced us to do things in a in a particular way. And so it sounds like that might be sort of what you were pushing yeah. back against. Well, I love that term values hijacking because I actually experienced that in being coached. And I had a, a male coach and I remember him kind of condemning all the words that were like part of my highest values, like freedom, lifestyle, like these are things that matter to me. And it was I so I started to feel like I wasn't a real entrepreneur. And so my confidence actually started to get shaken in that. Well, if I value freedom, if I value lifestyle, then I'm not a real entrepreneur. Like those like those things that kind of speak to us. So now I know internally that I have to look for coaches that align with my values, that support what I most care about. And I think that's something that we can get caught up in, right? That we start to work with people or systems or structures or marketing ways that actually don't align with who we are and what we care about. And then we start to feel like we are wrong. 
Like I am doing it wrong and I am wrong for not even wanting to do this thing. Absolutely. Okay, so I wanna kind of back up for a minute and just have you define what hustle culture means to you. Yeah, so hustle culture for me is really this constant push for more and where more is actually never enough. So we're in this constant hamster wheel of pushing the goalpost just a little bit further. And so we've never truly arrived, we've never truly achieved, yet we're constantly chasing the arrival, the achievement, and it's this insatiable quench for more and feeling like it's never enough. And so you just have a bottomless, what is it? A bottomless mimosa. Like your to-do list is a bottomless mimosa. Like it's just never ending. It just keeps going and it's never enough and you're never well rested and, and that exhaustion. So how I kind of define it is this acronym of fear, of forcing, exhaustion, avoidance, rigidity, and so with forcing, right, we're, we're kind of trying to push this, this plan or this agenda, like it needs to go this way. And we're just holding on to dear life and like just pushing when we really should be kind of surrendering to that. But that is kind of leads us to that sense of burnout. And then we lead into exhaustion where we are burnt out and we don't want to move. We don't want to do anything. And then we're shaming ourselves for resting in that form. Um, And then avoidance, when we're in that place of exhaustion, then we start to avoid the work and we go deeper down the shame spiral of really stepping away from the thing. Why can't I do it? Why am I procrastinating? And then the rigidity is really, we kind of cling to this one way of doing things. Like, this is the plan. This is the goal. Like I'm inflexible. I'm not going to adapt. I said I was going to do what I was going to say. And so I'm going to do it and not looking at the nuances and being able to adapt and shift and change and reflect, um, which I, I really love what you're saying about like, can we look at this as a practice? That everything is a practice, even writing a book to completion, right? We think that's the achievement, but it's that's a practice to prepare us for what's next, the next thing we're gonna work on. So, and I I know that I am playing with that, the inner critic is going super loud when we complete a project and feeling that like, oh, that wasn't good enough or is anyone going to like it? And so we kind of play that game. But if we look at it as like, that book was practice, then we can kind of release and soften and let go a bit. And it's like, okay, it's just preparing me for the next thing that I'm going to do. And that next thing that I do is not, that's not the end. That's another level of practice and deepening into that body of work. For me, the book is a particular container that my writing practice takes the form of, you know? So the the writing is the practice. Every day I show up and write, sometimes that enters into the container of a book, sometimes it enters into the container of a podcast. And I I love your bottomless mimosa metaphor because um, I don't know if you intend this or not, but there's like the more and more and more you drink the bottomless mimosa, the more intoxicated you get with the systems that you're sort of complicit with in that process. And so that even as you're burning out, your expectations are getting bigger and your feelings of inadequacy are getting bigger, even though you're like, oh God, I've drank so much, right? (laughs) So I love that. And I will totally be quoting you on that one. You talk a lot, especially in the sort of first third maybe of the book, about the role patriarchy and internalized patriarchy plays in our relationship to hustle culture. And so I'd love to hear kind of you explain how hustle culture is a tool of patriarchy and how that um, impacts us as as people who would prefer not to live in a patriarchal yeah. society. <laughs> well, it, it has us define success in a way that is, doesn't actually work for our lives. And yet that is what we're comparing ourselves to. And, you know, if we look back to the 1950s, right, there we're kind of comparing our output with being a 1950s housewife and the way that people kind of describe balance is if they've got that type of support at home where most people who identify as as a woman or were socialized female um, those pieces were holding on to two roles at the same time 
And even if, even if we have the support, like the domestic support at home or our partner, if you are in a partnership is having, taking some of that, there's still a psychological, like open tabs, open loops that we are still tracking all of those pieces. We've been trained and socialized in that way to take on the responsibility of it, even if we've delegated the responsibility. And that also shows up in our work, right? We can delegate, we can hire team, have support, but we have this, it's taking up psychological bandwidth and we're keeping those tabs open and that becomes very overwhelming and exhausting. And so we have to kind of retrain ourselves out of that way of thinking and operating. And I talk about toxic productivity, right? Of thinking that we just have to constantly be doing and being and creating and achieving all the time. And that's actually not how like the creative process works. There is rest. There is seasons of, you know, being able to slow down and also thinking is a form of action. And we kind of skip that that step in planning, right? We go right to execution and, and we're not giving ourselves enough time to be intentionable, intentional about, about what it is that we want, defining, like really thinking out loud and documenting even your thoughts before we go into execution and delegation. To the point about like thinking and actually defining what you want, there's an information architect named Abby Covert who has a book called How to Make Sense of Any Mess. And she talks about one of the first steps of any project, any sense-making activity is defining what is good and what is bad. And it is so often that we just assume what is good and what is bad, and we don't actually define those things for ourselves. And so you're right, like, totally, we can't plan if we don't know what we're planning for. And it seems so obvious, but it's not. It's not. It's not. (laughs) (laughs) The other piece uh, that I was thinking about, though, is with this like list making and like the monitoring piece, I see a lot of women outsourcing that to underpaid staff in their businesses. And so we create this cycle because we haven't interrogated that internalized patriarchy piece and the exploitation that comes with that on our side of things. We end up outsourcing it onto someone else. And I'm curious if you've encountered that and like what you recommend or how you deal with that as a coach uh, with folks to make sure that, you know, we're creating space for all of us to have a more fulfilling um, and more creative life. Yeah, I love that you brought that up because I have my amazing right hand, Michelle. She's been on my team for over seven years now. And I even coach her and I do check-ins with her. Like, do you have enough hours? And are you making enough? And so I'm always checking in to make sure that things feel equitable for her and also even support. It's like I take off my business owner hat for a moment and like step into coach um, because I, I want her to thrive. And I'm also sharing my intentions and what I'm trying to create and build with her and collaboration. Um, but I've, I've coached her up to ask for pay raises, not just with me, but across the board with everyone that she's working with. Like one of the things that I talk about in my book is to define your enough number. And so I'm always advocating for that with my team members as well, because I don't want people who are burnt out and overwhelmed and exhausted and aren't actually able to get their needs met in the process. I do want everyone on my team to be happy and thriving and having sustainable work in their lives. And one of my things that I say is burnout is not an option. And so that could be in the form of monetary, but also in how we do our work behind the scenes. A lot of these timelines we put on ourselves are are coming from ourselves. And it's like, we can extend the timeline. We can ask for more time. I can, I ask for more time with my editor. And I was like, thank you for like letting me live and embody that this book is about anti-hustle and we're not going to hustle our way and I'm going to ignore my kid in the process. I've done that before in writing books and it doesn't feel good to be up for over 24 hours working on a manuscript to make a deadline. And for what? So then now my health is compromised, my relationships 
are compromised. So I, I say, you know, building a business that compromises your health and relationships is not sustainable. And so we really need to rework our agreements with whoever, whoever we're working for or working with, that we actually need to start to model and make more powerful requests to get our needs met. But there's also hierarchy, people we're reporting to, it creates this like where we subordinate and don't ask for what we want or what we need. And so I'm also having those conversations with the founders that I coach and how they're talking to their team members of like, are you being transparent about rates? Yes, team is going to like be whispering behind the scenes and talking and then all of a sudden people leave. Like We really have to pay attention to, oh, we might need to do things a little bit differently than we've done in the past or what we grew up with. I get a lot of that from founders of like, part of them wants to shift like they they do they want they want to do business differently they want to honor the whole person behind the work that's being done and at the same time they're like but back in my day this is how it was done. you know what i mean so we're kind of walking this paradox of because there's some efficiency there's money savings that happen in that process you're kind of like trying to think like a smart you know savvy business owner but our world what I think is beautiful about the younger people is they're like not for it. And we can say like, oh, they're lazy. They're they're just like, they're just more bolder and braver than we were. We just like took it and we stayed for years. And these people are like, not cool, not okay. I'm going to go work for a company that like values me as a whole human and my full totality of emotions and psychological well-being, not just what I can perform and produce in a short amount of time. Elder millennials loved getting an A. (laughs) (laughs) And Gen Z is not here for it. Okay, so I want to shift gears a little bit. I mean, still on the same topic, but one of the books that I'm using is sort of like the theoretical foundation of this series is called Self-Help Inc. by a theorist named Mickey McGee. And she was really studying the literatures of self-improvement, of self-help, and, and kind of picking out the patterns, what's really going on here. And she writes that that what she studied sort of fell into two distinct options, the path of endless effort and the path of absolute effortlessness. And my guess is that you don't subscribe to sort of either path exclusively. <laughs> and so I'm curious how you personally navigate the territory between effort and effortlessness. And if you've got like a, an example or a story that you can share, that would be amazing. Yeah, so you're right. I am definitely, I, I feel everything is truly non-binary. <laughs> like if we can like not put things in, but also buckets and structure helps us un, un understand and organize things. So I talk about embrace your pace in chapter 12. And it's, you know, really looking at when are the seasons when I need to push? When is a season when I need to pause? And when is a season when I need to pivot? And this can be on a micro or macro level of really paying attention to how we navigate in our lives. So I guess that push would be the the effort right and then kind of the the pause the slowing down has a little bit more of that effortlessness in it and i think that we operate in all of those different things at different times based on our values and what matters the most so for me um i I can share an example of when i needed to pause so i was doing a lot of output in my business at the time i was working on my my book deal you know like writing the book proposal and all of these pieces i had a a group coaching program going on i was launch you know i was doing podcast episodes for lead with love and then i had grief happen where my um my 59 year old father passed away and then a few months later we had to put our 13 year old dog that we'd had since she was a puppy had to lay her to rest And then a few months after that, my brother, who's 16 years old at the time, had passed away in a car accident. And that all happened within six months. And it was just this compounding grief of of needing to heal and also kind of show up for the logistics of grief and also still navigating a business and all of the moving pieces that were happening. 
and you know subscribing into the hustle culture was like I should just keep pushing I should just keep going I'll kind of compartmentalize that and put that on the side and I had to make an intentional decision to actually pause and and actually it's where I shifted my podcast to be like I'm not going to do the weekly episodes I'm going to be more like Netflix and we will have seasons <laughs> where my capacity could really hold that and so I paused on the podcast I paused with my book coach and I you know like we were trying to like oh maybe you know you're healing and you could still write and this is like and I'm like I am living the book I cannot write the book right now in this season and so I had to and I even had to ask for support from you know, I have a resident life coach and just friends who stepped in to support that group coaching program at the time. So it was that intentional pause to really show up for my whole life, like my personal life and be there for my family and tend to my own grief. I think one of the stickiest things when it comes to hustle culture, when it comes to toxic productivity, when it comes to all of the crappy things that exist in the world that we buy into as success. I think many of us have formed identities around those things, or we have aspirational identities around those things, right? Like I'm becoming a successful person. I'm becoming a boss. I'm becoming this particular brand of leader, right? And wrestling with these different systems and different philosophies that are harming us also means wrestling with these identities that we've clung to for a really long time. And so I'm curious for you as your thoughts and 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 sort of awareness around this has grown and deepened over the years, was there any point in time where you sort of had to set aside an identity that you thought was important to you, that you thought you wanted to be and kind of form a new identity around being anti-hustle, around going at your own pace, et cetera. Yeah, so definitely. I will say for me, it was more stepping into a new identity versus letting go of one. Uh, because I do feel even as a business owner, a business leader, a coach, we kind of bring our essence with us, right? And whatever we, those lessons, we can bring them with us, but we don't have to cling to the identity. But for me, it was a reclamation of being an artist. So I actually decided, and I've actually been saying it a lot, of I'm an artist first and a business owner second. And so when I layered that into how do I deepen my artistry and how is business actually a vehicle for my creative expression and also my values, like I use I use business to to promote and highlight love. Like to me, I want more love in the world. I will use business as a vehicle to not only share, you know, self-compassion, but compassion for others, that sense of love and grace and patience and all of those pieces. I did a photo shoot in, in 2020, knowing I was going to rebrand my website, stepping stepping into authorship. You know, I had a previous book, it was a health and wellness. I was the green smoothie girl. And I'm like, that's not, I don't want to write another book about the thing I don't want to be known for. And so the photo shoot really helped me of like, I'm not trying to be a business leader or look like a smart expert business coach or thought leader even. I am just an artist expressing myself and, and deepening how I show up in my work. And as you said, like practice. So I signed up for a memoir writing class. So some of the stories weaved into this nonfiction, prescriptive, knowledge-based business book actually has stories that I wrote in a memoir writing class weaved in, into there. And so really taking on more of that of like, I am an author, I am an artist, I am a creator. And as I do that, I actually attract and call in more business owners who identify as creatives and artists too, and they are using their vehicles for a business of creativity and expression. And I was a spoken word poet. I was a theater major in high school at a performing arts high school in Las Vegas. That's like where my roots are, it's like creative. So I also started to unsubscribe from business leaders and marketing emails, and it's like, who are the artists that I'm inspired by? Who? What is the writing class or poetry class? And start to fill my world of what I'm consuming to be more art inspired and to refill my well in that way of like, I need more art and inspiration. And that's what makes me think outside the box and how I show up in my work. 
<laughs> we have been on such a parallel path these last couple of years. I've talked about this year as being my year of focusing on craft. So, you know, the craft of writing, craft of podcasting, craft of whatever I'm doing. And I love what you said about being an artist first and a business owner second, because it's the same thing for me, except it's academic first, business owner second, right? And and so for me too, it's been like, I don't listen to any business anything anymore. It's just give me all of the theory that I can possibly theory, history, like current event, all the things that I need to know about yeah. <laughs> so that I can do my own thing. Right. And um, I love also that you took a memoir writing class. I've taken a bunch of writing classes over the, the last so year. Much and it's fun. So much fun. And also so much rigor. Like yes. I am just so in awe of the writing process. I'm so in awe and I feel so green, so new, but it also feels so good because I'm like, I'm on a 10 year journey. There are several books that I want to write and I want to, I want to jump genres and I'm just at the beginning. It's so I have to be really kind to myself that I'm not going to write this like literary thing from the very beginning, but I'm at least practicing. And I even labeled my season of, of grief and healing as me being in my creative cocoon, where I'm kind of nurturing that artist, taking care of or tending to my emotional self. And then as I stepped out of that season, then I labeled that emergent expression. So I'm starting to expand and move into that space of, but it doesn't have to be fast. It doesn't have to be this thing that we are rushing. I am emerging into that creativity and expression, not rushing myself to that place. Okay, so you've used two words that I pair together quite often, which is rigor and rigidity. And I want to have a rigorous approach to my work, but I don't want to have a rigid approach to my work, right? That's where my book leaves off is like, this is the last last piece of advice, like focus on rigor, not rigidity. Um, but I'm, I'm curious for you, how do you keep a rigorous approach to your work from becoming a rigid mm -hmm. approach to your work or to your business? Yeah, I think, and I'm sure you probably talk about this in your book of kind of reframing goal setting. So I'm excited for us to deepen into that conversation. But it's even in how we set our intentions or our goals that there is fluidity and flexibility. So for me, it's all about high intention. I know what I want. Uh, so I know what I want. I know why I want it. And I don't know how or when. And part of my work is to try on a bunch of hows. I, I have no control of the when, but I can I can do my best to make educated guess and keep pushing the timeline. So for me, you know, I'm always doing quarterly planning and being able to, all right, this is what I want to do, but also life is going to happen. How do I make sure that I take into account my capacity and my commitments? And then be a lot more honest with what it really takes to do something. And then having that reflection process, right? Like a retrospective of what worked, what didn't work, what might I do differently next time? So that's the being the opposite of rigidity, right? Of everything is just, I'm looking at it, seeing what worked, and then I'm shifting and adjusting the plan, the timeline, do I even want to do this anymore? All of that, just to be in question. Um, and I think that is part of practice, right? I am just expressing myself. I'm showing up and I'm doing the work and enjoying the process. I think allows us to kind of release some of that rigidity is to actually just like, I'm in the moment with this work and I'm growing and I'm learning and some parts are hard and some parts are fun and kind of releasing that we have to have it all figured out because that's not what art is anyways. We, we don't know the answer. As I mentioned, my book leaves off with a call to pursue rigor in our work rather than rigidity. Hustle culture and productivity hacks produce rigidity, turning everything into a cold calculation or ever more optimized process produces rigidity. But a more humane approach to capacity, a more relational worldview, a more holistic view of our resources can create the space we need for a more rigorous approach to work and life. Instead of asking myself whether I can squeeze something more into my workload, I ask myself whether I have what I need to do that thing well. 
The specter of the productivity wage gap has taught us that we can do more using fewer resources. But I was tired of getting by on fumes. I was ready to move on from my belabored self. I was ready to shed the shoulds and supposed tos embedded in the medium of self-help. I simply don't wanna do it if I can't do it well. I won't do it if I can't do it in a way that's satisfying to me. And being satisfied with one's work is a surefire way to quit the productivity scam. Find out more about Jada Selner and her new book, She Builds, at jadaselner.com. And find Jada's podcast, Lead with Love, wherever you listen to What Works. Next week, I'm celebrating both the 400th episode of this podcast and the publication of my book, What Works, a comprehensive framework to change the way we approach goal setting. I'll be sharing a reading from the book in that episode. And after that, you'll hear a number of conversations I recorded for other podcasts throughout November. I have received such wonderful feedback about this series. You know, content like this, uh, well, it doesn't provide immediate sales results and it probably hasn't even given you a new idea for a product. It's not even really businessy per se. My hope and intention is that more than immediate results, it gives you a long-term shift in perspective that will be even more valuable over time. If that's what you've received from this series so far, I've got a favor to ask. Well, two really. First, if you haven't left a review of what works on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please do so. You can find a shortcut to doing exactly that at whatworkspodcast.com. Just click reviews in the navigation bar. Second, and most importantly, share what works with a friend. Having someone to talk with about what you hear on the show is a perfect way to deepen your thinking. Plus, they'll appreciate the recommendation. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Emily Kilduff is our production assistant. This episode was written by me, Tara McMullen, and edited by Marty Seafelt and me. Sean McMullen is our executive producer. All of the music in today's episode is from Track Club by Marmoset, a certified B Corp. What Works is recorded on the ancestral homeland of the Susquehannock and Conestoga peoples in what is now called Central Pennsylvania. The Yellow House sits on the unceded land of the Kutunaha Nation. Mm-hmm.